Hello, everyone, and welcome to the In Defense of Plants podcast, the official podcast of InDefenseofPlants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How is everyone doing this week? I am doing great because we are traveling over 300 million years into the past to talk about lycopsid evolution. Many of you will be familiar with lycopods because they do still exist on this planet today, albeit a mere shadow of what they once were. And my guest today is Meg Nibelink. She is spending most of her early research career trying to understand their phylogeny and evolutionary history. How you do that is quite a challenge, and she is really good at describing it. I mean it. She is an excellent science communicator and is going to do great things. But before we get to that, I just want to say, if you're enjoying the show, I couldn't be doing it without support. And one of the best ways to support the show is to become a patron over at patreon.com slash plants. There are kickbacks for a little financial support each month, and a little bit goes such a long way. I literally couldn't be doing this without my patrons. So go check that out. Once again, that's patreon.com slash plants. But that is entirely enough for me. I don't want to keep you from this incredible lycopod story. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Meg Nibelink. I hope you enjoy. All right, Meg Nibelink, welcome to the podcast. I am pumped to talk to you about your research today, but let's start off with an introduction. Tell everyone a little bit about who you are and what it is you do. So I'm Meg. I'm a PhD candidate as of May at the University of Kansas in ecology and evolutionary biology. I have a Bachelor of Science and Master's degree from Humboldt State University, where I got my undergrad in botany and my master's in biology. So I've been been doing this for a little while. (laughs) Nice. And where did this journey begin? I mean, it's not every day you even have the opportunity to jump into paleobotany, but here you are. How did you get here? Sure. And it's something, you know, when we do these outreach events at the museum at KU uh, for kids, I'll be like, do you know what a paleobotanist is? And they look at me like, yeah, (laughs) well, they're way ahead of where I was because I didn't know paleobotany was a thing until I started college. Um, I originally thought I wanted to go into agriculture. Hmm. Uh, my family on both sides has a history of farming and ranching. So I thought I wanted to do that. Um, went to Humboldt, started my degree in botany. And I remember the first lecture of college so vividly. It was my <laughs> Botany 105 class with Dr. Mihai Tomescu, who ended up being both my undergrad and master's advisor. Um, and I was so nervous Aww. that I threw up in a bush on the way oh. back. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> but um, growing up, I always had an affinity for dinosaurs. And I was a botany student. So I walk in my, you know, Mihai walks in with this huge bamboo stick that he uses to point at the (laughs) screen and he introduces himself and he's like, yeah, I'm a paleobotanist. And I'm like, wow, fossils and plants, I'm in, let's go. And so I think the following fall, I sent him an email and was like, hey, do you have anything for me to do in your lab? He's like, yep. And been here ever since. So that was in 2016, I guess. Nice. See, it just goes to show you, like sometimes just those cold emails or cold calls can really be fruitful. And look at you, you're on your way to like an actual career in this after just going, well, those are two things I like. So, wow. 
Amazing. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of people around me, you know, I have a lot of really wonderful, talented, smart friends um, who tend to, you know, my brain just works a little different. So I generally don't look as good on paper as a lot of my (laughs) friends do. And so when I talk to them about this experience, they're like, oh, I didn't even need to ask. They asked me. Mm. But I think that very often and in a lot of times when I've asked for things, that ends up saying a lot about me as a person, too. So, you know, I, I see it in my students, too. They're under the impression that you need to wait to be asked to do something hmm. to get it that you want it. But in actuality, oftentimes, if you ask, you'll get it. Yeah. And yeah. sometimes you won't. And that yeah. sucks. But That's, so is life. <laughs> that is life indeed. But I agree. I think it's one of those things that like being offered <laughs> something's cool. I mean, hey, offer up, right? Uh, advertisers mm-hmm. listening. But, um, you know, it's those moments when you really <laughs> seek things out. And, and really go that extra mile that, that to me, at least now that I'm in a different position and I'm looking at students, I'm looking at employees and you go, oh, yeah, they're showing some initiative there. It's not a guarantee. Nothing in life is. But at least going above and beyond what just falls on your plate, it shows some passion. And especially in the world like paleobotany, I can't imagine it's something you just pick up, right? I mean, we can have an interest, you can have mm-hmm. intrigue and, and read about these sorts of things. But to really get in and be a paleobotanist it takes a lot more effort. You have to have access to a lot of different things and things have to fall in the right place for it to really work out. So kudos for setting those dominoes rolling on your own. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of, I'm a generally pretty nervous person, but sometimes I'm like, okay, time to suck it up. You got to do something (laughs) here. Yeah. Yeah. If, if nerves kept us in bed all day, well, not much would get done, especially on the side of the the mic. So, You know, I've had those days too. It happens. Yeah, we're all human. But, you know, even within paleobotany, that's a big world, right? And and plants have been on the the landscape far longer than most animals. Uh, And so their fossil record is deep, uh, sometimes incomplete. So where were the early days of this paleobotany foray in your training? Like, what were you looking at? What kind of stuff were you working on? So that's kind of where this story gets a little bit more complex. It's sort of bifurcates, if you will, because I start working in Mihai's lab and he always has first semester students making cellulose acetate peels for him, which, you know, if you are unfamiliar or anyone else is unfamiliar, involves you polish the surface of a rock, you dissolve it in very dilute uh, hydrochloric acid generally, unless you have a silicaceous matrix which you use hydrofluoric acid which is very scary <laughs> and that's when i ask my collections manager for help and he does the etching for me <laughs> nice. um and then when you do that it exposes the fossils just i think it's about 25 microns it's like oh, very small that much and so the rock is gone the fossils exposed, you melt a piece of plastic on it with acetone. And when you pull the piece of plastic off, it takes the fossil with it. So then you can put it under um, a microscope and look at it. And it, you know, depending on the quality of preservation, you can see every cell of what once was this plant. And it's, 
it's time consuming. Yeah. Um, you know, in between each of those stages, you need to take a couple minutes to let things dry to that plastic, depending on, you know, what you're working with can take 10 or 15 minutes to dry. Peeling it off can be really hard depending on, you know, the texture of the rock or whatever. And so that's sort of your first chance to <laughs> make a good impression. That's how he tells if you can stay there and hang out and that you're willing to do some of this stuff. So I did those peels. And at the time he was working on material on loan from the Smithsonian, from the Devonian of Canada. Ooh. And there is this group of fossil plants called the Zostrophils, which are a basal grade paraphyletic group to the lycophytes. Mm. So you have your three early vascular plant groups, your rhinophytes, which are basal to that lycophyte euphilophyte split, your trimerophytes, which are at the base of the euphilophytes, and then zostrophils at the base of the lycophytes. And so for my undergrad work that ended up not culminating in any publication, but it did culminate a talk in 2019 in Tucson, um, I did a floristic survey of these zostrophil fossils from this locality. And at that point, I was really frustrated with that project. Oh. Um, this particular form of fossilization called permineralization is very rare, um, that anatomical preservation. And so oftentimes the preservation isn't, you know, quite as good as you'd hope mm. for. As with most fossils, mm -hmm. they're not perfect. And so I was pretty frustrated with this project. I gave this talk and I was like, I'm ready to never think about a zostrophil ever again for the rest <laughs> of my life. And then Mihai was like, so uh, you can do this project, this project, or the zostrophils for your master's thesis. And I don't remember what the other two were, but I was like, I think it was secondary growth, which is a terrifying can of worms to open up. And Ooh. I was scared of, oh. quite frankly. <laughs> okay. um, but there's a lot of really good work in secondary growth that has come out of and it continues to come out of that lab. Oh, nice. Uh, Madison Lalica is doing a really cool project for her master's currently with him on secondary growth and wound response. Dang. Um, and I can't remember what the first one was, but I was like, fine, I guess I'll stay with the Zostrophils. <laughs> twist my arm. So that's, I did a, <laughs> yeah. Um, and then to back up a little bit, the reason that I was interested in lycophytes, generally speaking, was my sophomore year, I took evolution morphology of vascular plants and Mihai taught that class. Um, and Alex Bippus was my teaching assistant <laughs> nice. actually for that lab. And um, so when we were learning about lycophytes in the Carboniferous, I remember just being amazed, yeah. like thinking this is the coolest thing ever. Um, and, uh, I asked Mihai about doing a project about lycophytes for my master's and he was really in Devonian stuff. And, you know, I tend to have this brain that runs kind of wild and free. <laughs> Thankfully, Mihai was always there to rope me in and be like, we need to be reasonable here. Solid. Um, same with my current advisor, Kelly Matsunaga. She, you know, yeah. she's excited for me to explore things and do things but at the same time she's like okay let's be practical here <laughs> you've you got to graduate do something and finish it <laughs> yeah yeah exactly and so um 
yeah, so when I finished my bachelor's, I stuck with the Zostrophil project. Uh, we were going to do an entirely specimen-based project, um, but I was interested in systematics. And so hmm. I kept kind of like pushing it a little bit. Mihai really didn't want to do a systematics project because he's like, you can never know if things are going to turn out right at the end. You hmm. doing a specimen based project is like a guaranteed outcome. You describe a hmm. fossil, you present it like that's a guaranteed outcome. That's something you can do. Like, you know, it's going to work, which as an advisor, incredibly smart advice right. to be giving <laughs> as myself with my brain. I was like, ooh, but phylogenetics fun let's learn a whole new software let's make this enormous matrix on zostrophils <laughs> it was and i didn't know anything i didn't know anything wow. but i kept kept poking the bear and finally he he was like okay but we're still gonna keep the fossils <laughs> and then COVID hit Ugh. um and so a couple months before I was going to defend, we still had, you know, in my proposal, these specimens. And he's like, I don't think we're going to get these specimens done. Let's do this phylogenetic project for your masters. And so I just, I think it's really funny, but that's how that worked out. <laughs> that I kind of twisted 180 degrees, but it has set me on this really cool trajectory. I've learned so much since then about computing yeah. and phylogenetics and i've taken a bunch of classes in probability and likelihood mm. like theoretical math right. and you know i took a class in the in the math department and i was just <laughs> honestly there for the vibe um <laughs> Deepang lu bless his heart was like this this girl has no idea what's going on but he was so kind to me and I learned some cool stuff about probability. And so now I feel much better equipped to do what I'm proposing for my dissertation work, a similar project on a broader scale of lycophyte evolution, including zostrophils and other groups, and then also some evolutionary rate estimations wow. and stuff like that. So, <laughs> you know, this it, the whole journey has been stumbling. I've just stumbled into this. Nice. Um, like a little baby deer, but <laughs> it's, it's been fun. And I've had, I've had some good folks around, you know, at critical points to be like, Meg, you need to bring it in a little here. You gotta focus, Yo. stop letting your brain go off in so many directions. Yeah. Yeah. I, wow. Yeah. <laughs> I love it though. That is such a fun <laughs> sort of like, again, you can't predict things and I love mirroring that anytime. I, I can have the chance to do it. There's no recipe. There's no guarantees, especially when, you know, people can fall back on common patterns, but you are living proof. Your work is living proof that that's not always going to be the case. And a guaranteed thing can come in a surprising way. But, you know, the thing you have that's very obvious is passion and confidence and a willingness to try and, and take a leap. And, and oftentimes we don't know what's underneath us, but that leap can lead you down a whole new series of questions or, or pathways. And what's really cool is it sounds like all of this passion has really allowed you to develop your tool set to be able to be a better scientist in what you want to do, right? And if you were just focusing on one lane of doing that type of science, you would have robbed yourself of all of the stats, all of the theory, all of the things that can really make it better and more interesting as you move forward in this. Mm -hmm. And I also think a lot of those 
you know, part of the reason that I intend to pursue a career in academia is I really enjoy teaching. Nice. And I, and I, I like to think that I'm pretty good at it. Some of my students have told me and some of them haven't liked me. And that's just how the world turns. But um, I think the fact that school has never come naturally to me, I've always been a pretty average student. Uh, Learning and accomplishing things is not something that comes easily to me and oftentimes takes a, a good amount of struggle Um, makes me a lot more effective as a teacher as well. And sort of this coming back, I mean, as a kid, I was, I was terrified of math. Math Mm. was a scary thing. Mm -hmm. Math was something smart people did. (laughs) I was not smart, could not be for me. Um, You know, the, the whole trope of the dad making you cry at the kitchen table doing math. We would be up really late and he's trying, but my brain just didn't work that way. And I'm eight and I'm tired. And (laughs) so kind of coming back to it as an older person now with a with a basis in it. I've also been, you know, last fall, I taught a statistics class like I not taught it. I was a teaching assistant, but I would have students come to me so frequently that you could just see the confusion and defeat all over their face. And to be able to sit down with them and have a conversation like this is not easy. This is going to take a little bit of effort. And to have those tools to be like, if this isn't working for you, this might because it helped me. And to help them reach those moments where you see it click. And it's like, oh, that didn't make sense the first way, but it makes sense this way. It's just such a fulfilling thing for me. So I'm glad that I've had that experience to be able to help my students now who to have a little bit of an easier experience as they move through it, I guess. Sure. Yeah. I mean, that is a perspective sorely needed in a lot of uh, uh, realms of academia. I mean, I'm not faulting people for this, but how many times have you gone to a professor and talked about their background? It's like, yeah, I went from undergrad to master's, right into PhD. Now I'm teaching. Like they've never struggled. They've never experienced anything outside of it. And to bring that different perspective to the table, I think opens the door to so many more students than just the, the, the top echelon that know exactly what they want. And I was the same way. Math was terrifying. Math really up until I got into grad school was something I just didn't do unless I absolutely had to. And so, yeah, to have people like you take me aside and be like, look, I know it sucks. <laughs> Here's what worked for me and and may not be the thing that works for them. But another person could say, you know, it, it really sets you on a better path. So I, I'm so happy to hear people that are like, I really like it because of teaching, because that is missing oftentimes, unfortunately, in academia. Yeah. And I mean, like, I love college students. They can be kind of crappy sometimes, but most (laughs) of the time they're hilarious. They're enjoyable to be around. They have really good insight. Um, You know, I at Humboldt State, now Cal Poly Humboldt, I had, I was one of very few traditional college students. Most of my peers were, you know, veterans or later in life or Mm. transfer or, you know, any sort of variable thing. So there were a lot of really good perspectives. Here at KU, the the student population is a little different, but it it remains the same that I still get, you know, students that 
have really good insight and in ways I haven't thought about things. Um, and I also think having that, that element of humanity and like, as a graduate student, as a young graduate student, I'm pretty short, I'm close in age to these students. I kind of utilize the fact that I'm more of a peer sure. to my advantage. I can still manage a classroom, but at the same time, I don't feel the need to have them feel like there's a divide, yeah. like I am something beyond them. I'm just, I'm only a few years out of school. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah. I want you to feel comfortable coming into my office or telling me what you did this weekend or whatever. And they do, they respond to that. And I, I've had really good outcomes in teaching that way. And I find it a lot more enjoyable. I've tried to be very serious. Uh, I got some advice when I first started teaching upper division courses that um, I was told is like, you know, talk as little as possible because if you say something wrong, they're never going to let you live it down. Like do this, that, and, the, and I, I did try it. It just didn't work for me as well sure. as something a little less formal. So, you know, maybe as I get older and further in my career, that's going to change. But for right now, this is the way I find teaching most effective yeah. and most fun. So yeah. And yeah. Have fun if you can have fun. Cause most of the time, a lot of stuff isn't fun, but mm -hmm. you know, also being sort of a, a walking billboard for your study area. Right. I, I mean, paleobotany is only going to continue as long as there's new people, new people from different backgrounds coming into this. Mm -hmm. And having that approachability, having that love of being able to interact and wanting to interact and, and show people where curiosity could take you, like that's going to make the field stronger at the end of the day. It's what the next crop of grad students, you know, and then the future of teaching of it, it, it just, it's helping paleobotany, which I'm guessing from the people I've talked to and you're in the field, so you know way better than me, isn't massive, right? It's not overfloweth no. with the candidates. <laughs> I weirdly, I went to a wedding in Sacramento this past weekend. My cousin got married and on, on the plane ride home, I was talking to this kid next to me about science. And he goes, my mom's a scientist. I'm like, oh, yeah, what do you do? She's like, I'm a plant biologist. I'm like, oh, I'm a paleobotanist. And they're like, my aunt's a paleobotanist. Huh. I go, what's her name? They go, Carol Houghton. I'm like, I know her. I met her once at a conference. That's really weird. Small world. That's <laughs> so amazing. It's very small. If someone is a paleobotanist, I've either met you or read your paper before, probably. Yeah. Well, thinking of that mm -hmm. from that perspective is like how small this world is. You know, when you're trying to build a phylogeny, say, of a really poorly understood group, you don't have any living extant species to look at. Now, I know there are descendants out there. And trying to put mm -hmm. it together off of what are, I'm assuming, very small, very fragmentary, often cross-sectional sorts of uh, pieces of these organisms. I mean, that is truly like you you got to pull on the resources, but you got to think out of the box. That's got to be so difficult to try to understand how these things are related to each other, let alone what they looked like when they were alive. Yeah, and I mean, that was a lot of the process of what we did for my master's thesis is the last major uh, phylogeny of zostrophils that was done was Kenrick and Crane in 1997. Oh, wow. And they had 
I can't even remember at this point how many, I want to say it was like 20 tax and 25 characters or something along those lines. <laughs> and so it had just been a while and it was like, well, we could, we could retry this. So let's retry it. And at first we were going to do like a cluster analysis. We did yeah. a, a UPGMA and that was sort of where I went. I was like, you know, Mihai, we could make this uh, <laughs> phylogenetic analysis pretty easily from here. And he's like, ah, okay. And so that's how we got there. But I mean, that process in and of itself of just defining characters and determining which taxa we were going to use took six months. Dang. Um, and, you know, I looked at the way Kenrick and Crane had determined taxa and characters, and I used some of what they had done. I mean, a lot of it was unavoidable. Sure. But then there were other characters that I was like, you know, I think this can be done a little differently. Like, for example, branching, branching patterns. Mm. I was noticing from reading the literature, the branching pattern in a more um, like basal part of the plant is going to look different from something that's you know, distal way out towards the tips. Hmm. And so I was like, do we have enough information here to score that as two characters? Could we do that? Because I think it's more informative to the plant as a whole if we partition those two. Um, we also emphasized a focus on anatomy. Um, I think it was Bill Crepe and Carl Nicholas the year before had put out a paper about you know, how informative morphological, reproductive, and anatomical characters were uh, in analyses of these Devonian plants. But the sampling of taxa, at least ostrophils, and then anatomical characters were was pretty small, especially relative to your morphological features, which is bound to happen. Mm. There's a lot more you can say about, you know, a completely preserved specimen versus like this <laughs> little anatomical fragment but right. it's like what if we even that out a little bit what does that data tell us Ooh. and so we upon you know having a little bit more of an even data set found that we still had pretty good resolution in our phylogenies even if we were just looking at anatomical characters and furthermore they even if they had a little less resolution they resembled our morphological uh, and all character trees that popped out. So it still tells you, you know, anatomy is kind of a struggle to work with in phylogeny for these really old plants. There's not a ton of data on it, but when you have it, it's probably a good idea to include it and it'll still give you probably a more accurate representation of how evolution has occurred or in theory should give you a more accurate representation than excluding it. Wow. I love that too, because there's so many instances where, oh, it'd be nice if we had that. And, you know, for modern stuff, there's always a chance of resampling or going back out to find it. In many cases, you're stuck with the rocks that you got, and there are literally no leftover examples of it out in the wild to go find. So it's really making the best of what you have available, but then trying things in tandem, trying things in unison and seeing what that kind of puts out. It's, it's really cool to hear those sorts of behind the scenes approaches because, I don't think enough people really realize what goes into these sorts of analyses, especially from the paleo side of things. Sure. And I think even paleo work generally, every paleo conference we have, there are two questions 
questions we hear a lot is like, well, how can you actually know that this plant is different from this plant if it's just one fossil? Mm -hmm. You have a sample of one. Well, I I can't tell you. What I can tell you is here's how it's similar to other things. Here's how it's different. This is a leaf. It might belong to this stick. But until we find a leaf and a stick stuck together, I can't tell you for sure. That's why we name it to catalog it and put it somewhere. Um, And the other one is always, well, why don't you take DNA, use molecular data? Well, there are some fossils. Uh, A lot of people would term them sub fossils that you could take (laughs) DNA from. And that's, you know, ancient DNA stuff that I'm not familiar with. I work in much older things. But in the case of most fossils, what you're looking at, it's a cast or what has what was once there has decayed and refilled with sediment. So it's not actually what was once there. There's no DNA that you can take from that. You cannot extrapolate molecular data. And so that's also kind of why I'm interested in this area of morphological systematics is it allows me to incorporate this wealth of data of plants that were once alive that you cannot access if you're just focusing on molecular data. Totally, totally. And yeah, I mean, you're dealing with deep, deep time here. And while there are, you know, mm-hmm. lycopods out there today, they're a far cry from what they once were, at least the dominant vegetation. I'm sure there were small ones back in the day too, but like mm-hmm. you, you really, I don't have that luxury is like the best <laughs> kind of like, well, we're forced to figure out another way to do it. And and what's also cool is like, at least with some of that perimineralization stuff, the, the cross sections I've seen, you get hyper detailed on the small oh, micropos- yeah. mi- mi- microscopic scale that at least, you know, it's better than nothing. And in fact, it's better than a lot of fossils. Yeah. And I mean, especially some of that uh, material from the Rhiney chert out of uh, the UK, you see this incredible level of detail, just perfectly preserved specimens that, you know, if you put it on a microscope next to a living plant, no, they're not going to be the same things. Those are, that's a Devonian plant. This is a living plant, but your parent parenchymatous tissues are going to look exactly the same. Wow. The cells are perfect, um, which is really cool. And something I also like to emphasize when we do these outreach events to the public, oftentimes the kids are way more concerned at looking at their fingers underneath the microscope, <laughs> which knock yourself out. Sure. I think that's hilarious. And I love watching them enjoy that. But surprisingly, the adults that, you know, are teachers and lawyers and engineers and whatever, and they brought their kids to this museum event, I'll go through my little spiel about Carboniferous Kansas and look at this. This is 300 million years old and you can see all the cells and it'll just blow their minds because it is really cool. Yeah. Like it's really cool what I do. And it it's fun to watch someone else who would probably never think about it, look at it and go, wow, you know, go home. I'd see, you know, husbands go up to their wives and like re re-say what I had just said hey, and what? tell them and be excited. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You'd be like, this is really old. You can see all the cells. It's really cool. And I I sometimes, you know, in the monotony of research and life and teaching and all the other things that you have to do, you kind of like lose the excitement about things because 
grad school is hard yeah. in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, but it is really fun to, to be reminded by somebody with fresh eyes, like, wow, this is really cool. Mm. And I get to do it all the time. Yeah. I mean, I, that's why I love looking in from the outside. You know, I, I like, I work in modern day botany, right? And so to, mm-hmm. to look back, I love fossils. I geek out about dinosaurs and ancient ecosystems, but it, it's just seeing what y'all are doing and, and seeing the resolution you sometimes get, right? And and that's why I like that you said that about adults because, yeah, you know, adults, they've seen cells, they've seen cross-sections, you know, they've been through it a lot more oftentimes than their kids have at that point. And yeah, when you see something that old and it's that familiar, it just kind of ties you back to square one, so to speak, with life and where we're at, mm-hmm. what we are. And and you start to realize, you know, you, you mentioned Carl Nicholas's work is this idea that there's only so many ways it can work, right? And, and just to see that connection mm-hmm. over 300 plus million years, is, it, I get goosebumps just talking about it right now. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I got into paleobotany because I liked plants and I liked fossils. I think really why I'm still here and sort of what I tell people is I'm not really a paleobotanist I'm more of a systematist but Mm. primarily a plant morphologist like plant morphology is what has kept me here Mm. I love you know I TA'd a systematics class a couple semesters ago and being able to you, you know talk really in a informed way about what is homology? How do we know these things is really, really fascinating to me. Morphology is sort of what's kept me in this arena for so long, I think more so than anything else. That's cool. Yeah. And, and really you're, you're so steeped in it, whether it's obvious in that day or that moment or not, it's really like, that's what fossils are. And you know, what's also fascinating is just how much detective work you and your colleagues have to do to get to something that you're even remotely confident about, you know, is a lot of unsurety, Mm -hmm. a lot of, well, the next crack of a rock could change everything, be open to that. Mm -hmm. But, you know, what happens in those moments when, you know, you're in time periods like that, that era between, you know, just before the Triassic, when there are these huge gaps in our understanding of at least the plant side of things. I mean, how do you even start to go, well, let's try to fill those gaps. Let's try to understand, are there deposits? I mean, are you even lucky enough to work with large enough specimens to say anything anatomically speaking? Sure. And that's um, a lot of what we're gearing my dissertation work to be towards. And I also want to start out by saying my colleagues, for the most part, are a lot better at this than I am. (laughs) I'm sort of, I call it the tippy tappies, like the coding and the phylogenetics (laughs) and the mathematics. Like that's where my brain is comfortable. When I do specimen-based work, I'm so uncomfortable. I I just, I don't think I have the eye for it very well. Um, But I, my colleagues are incredibly talented at looking at things and having a like a gut read immediately hmm. and pursuing that. And I, it's just really difficult for me for whatever <laughs> reason. Um, but back to the topic of filling in gaps, uh, the group of plants that I'm looking to do my dissertation work on is the isotalian lycopods. So hmm. it's a 
it's a group of lycopods um, that are categorized by having a rhizomorph, which is this underground rooting stem and uh, secondary growth. And they're heterosporous. So they have mega and microspores. And we know that, you know, they were they just dominated the planet in the Carboniferous. They give name to the Carboniferous. They <laughs> were these enormous trees that made coal. Um, and that's also the only way I can get my engineer dad to be excited <laughs> about my research. Yeah, yeah. Um, We went to the Smithsonian and I'm like, this is what I study in trees. And he's like, wow, that's really cool. But we know they just dominated the planet. And then at the end of the Carboniferous, we have these rapid climate change events that cause a decline in their their you know abundance on earth but mm -hmm. also put in puts in to action this chain reaction that hinders uh preservation mm. and so we don't see as many fossils in the fossil record they're not as well char characterized up until much later um but they still persist. And we have, even today, isoedes, which, you know, <laughs> to your layperson probably looks pretty unexceptional, this little grass looking thing. Right, tufts of grass, um, usually in water. But if you, yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly, dead, you know, nine months out of the year. Yeah. But it's like this really exceptional in comparison to everything else alive today, very exotic plant. Yeah that you can't understand out of outside of the context of its fossil record. And so we have a little bit of, we have a couple fossils known from the Cretaceous and more recent, and then the Carboniferous, but this Permian Triassic Jurassic is, is a point in time where we're not really sure what's going on. Wow. Um, and so in addition to, I'm working on a fossil specimen from Antarctica uh, like I said, wow. specimen work is challenging for me. <laughs> this is also preserved in a silicaceous matrix. So we need to get back to the the really scary hydrofluoric acid etching, which takes several days. Oh, yeah. um, I need to coordinate with my collections manager, photograph. Um, in addition, these peels, when you peel off the specimen, you you can't really see it anymore just based on the way things are preserved. So you can only really see these fossils once they've been etched with the peel on. Um, so it's just, it's, it's a challenging material to work with yeah. on top of the fact that it's, it's not my forte, um, but it is a really important fossil to investigate because it's from the Triassic, which is this key period of time yeah. between isoitalian lycopod dominance and sort of this decrescendo into <laughs> a single living genus that's about this big. Right. And um, so I'm still kind of plucking away at that, Whew. but I'm also hoping using some more recent phylogenetic tools, uh, evolutionary rate estimations and um, phylogenetics to maybe tease apart some of these questions as best as I can using circumstantial wow. kind of calculations and evidence. We'll see how it works out. Yeah. Yeah. But this is like forensics yeah. doesn't even begin to describe the level of detail. And man, 
Uh, yeah. Do you have fingerprints still from all the acid you've worked with? <laughs> I'm guessing you're safe with it, right? The hydrochloric acid is actually that it's it's kind of funny every time you teach someone to do peels for the first time when it's hydrochloric acid you just put your your fingers in it it's very dilute oh. <laughs> um weaker weaker than your stomach acid what i say is don't do it but you could drink it and be fine like it's not going to do anything <laughs> but don't the hydrofluoric acid it, it it will if you get it on your skin i don't understand this precisely but what i've been told is it it binds up the calcium in your body so neurons can't fire anymore and you essentially become paralyzed pretty quickly it requires very rapid attention hospitalization we keep this special cream in our lab fridge um but that's why only our collections manager rudy who is incredible he's the best only rudy's allowed to do it and i'm happy with it that way i am okay staying away from the very scary chemical Shout out to all the Rudys out there for taking the... All the Rudys, the collections managers, the lab techs holding it down for us. Hell yeah. Because that's the other thing. He's, (laughs) I mean, he takes it seriously, but he's also just like, oh yeah, you you wear the proper equipment, you, you know, don't mess around, you'll be fine. It's fine. I'm not worried about it. Like I am. Confidence from repetition, I guess. Whatever works, Rudy. (laughs) Just be safe, He's been doing it for a while. (laughs) Nice. So, you know, again, coming back to this idea of what you have available to do phylogenetics, to do evolutionary rate estimations, you know, you're looking at a group that, you know, was once something major uh, for so much of the Earth's history. And then you fast forward a few hundred million years, nothing big. And like you said, they're these tiny representatives. Yeah, a couple made it through and maybe diversified again. So what size fossils are you working with here? Like, what is a big piece that works for you? And, And what kind of traits you know what features or or pieces of the plant really factor in to allow you to start doing phylogenetic analyses based on morphology and then evolutionary rate estimates like what pieces of the plant do you hope to find in those moments gosh that's a good question and it really depends so with those carboniferous plants the the scale trees lepidodendron think you know in terms of three four stories tall wow a foot and a half two feet three feet wide just the the rooting axis we have a cast of one the rhizomorph in the museum that's like almost as tall as i am which isn't saying much i'm very short but it's big like this is a big plant going to you know through time we see this general trend from the carboniferous to modern day where these plants are declining in size. They're becoming smaller mm. and also less abundant to today with isoedes where, it, you know, the they call it a corm. It's not morphologically homologous with the angiosperm corm, but it looks pretty similar. And it's, you know, a couple inches across, very tiny, but still retains the morphological characteristics of this huge tree wow. in this shrunk down package. And so... Working in this group is really cool because with the zostrophils, all the fossils I was looking at were a couple millimeters. I was under the microscope, you know, flipping through hundreds of peels. And, you know, Mihai would come and be like, oh, I got another zostrophil for you. And I'll be like, dang, so much. No more. Um, 
but I now get this opportunity to work with much larger fossils Whew. that, you know, in theory are a little easier to figure out what's going on, but uh, in practice are not always. Uh, there's, and you know, there's been kind of a, it's kind of interesting because around the, the turn of the 20th century, these carboniferous lycopods were a really huge area of study in paleobotany. Mm. They were very popular to work and publish on. And so, you know, th they did a bunch of work and that was popular for a while. And then it sort of fizzled out. People were like, okay, we've done the work we need to do on this. Let's move on. And they haven't been worked on a ton since. Hmm. Um, there are a handful of people who, you know, are experts on it. Bill DeMichael, who has been super helpful to me, he's at the Smithsonian, is an expert on these plants. But just figuring out what's going on with them anatomically is a really specialized area of knowledge that is, is quite honestly, it's difficult to find references to figure out what's going on. Wow. So I've kind of moved from this place of simple, tiny plants that had their own challenges, were tiny, didn't have a whole lot to them. And that was a challenge in and of itself to now big, huge plants with tons of fossils in this one area. But determining what's going on is becoming a rarer area of knowledge. And so just trying to kind of compile and figure out what's going on has been its own unique challenge. And that's aside from, you know, this huge gap in the fossil record uh, in the middle there that I need to figure out how to contend with. Wow. Yeah. I thought my wildlife and, you know, rare endangered species friends had it tough with sample size issues and trying to, you know, infer, but my hat's off to you and your colleagues in that. But I mean, again, it, these are challenges that like throughout your career, you're inevitably going to come up against them. So it's that toolbox, right? Is like, how do you even navigate the literature, let alone the people, let alone the quagmire permits mm -hmm. and access, that sort of stuff. So, you know, it, it sucks. But again, a lot of things in grad school do. So take it in strides. And I guess it's all <laughs> learning processes at the end. <laughs> and I, you know, quite frankly, science is not done in a vacuum. Truth. And I feel very fortunate. I've made some connections with just brilliant people um, who for the most part, are so kind and so excited and willing to help you with anything. I mean, I just sent an email to Bill DeMichael one day, which was surreal for me because I've, <laughs> you know, been reading his work forever. I'm like, oh, my gosh, this guy's a genius. And he's like, oh, yeah, let's get on Zoom. I can teach you everything you need to know. <laughs> you know, here, I'll send you everything I've ever published before Dang. and every paper that I have. Do you want reprints of anything? Just like out of nowhere. This yeah. man doesn't know me. Yeah. He doesn't. He just saw, oh, cool. She likes lycophytes. I can help with that. Yeah. And so he did. <laughs> or um, Kathleen Pig has written a couple just really exceptional review papers on this group of plants that have been such a firm anchor as I dive into this super chaotic field that's just inundated with research it has so much going on and quite frankly feels very overwhelming a lot of the time. Yeah. But I have these things that I can go back to and be like, okay, like recenter, take a deep breath, 
what did Kathleen say? What does Bill say? Let's keep going. And then, you know, most immediately in my life, Kelly Matsunaga, who has me, this like chaotic tornado (laughs) cloud of thoughts and ideas that can never stay together and has most recently been working on seed plants that, you know, is there to help me brain in my craziness and also (laughs) use, do what she can. And when she doesn't know, she'll be like, well, you know, go figure it out. My blessing, like go figure it out. And so that in and of itself has been really fun too, to sort of be given the permission to get just crazy with whatever I want to do. And eventually I have to come back to earth, but um, all in due time. Yeah. It's not done in a vacuum. I really could, I can't imagine doing any of this by myself. No way. And that's just the professional help that I get, you know, academically. There's also just having other grad students around or postdocs. Right. Is like, you cannot do this alone. Yeah. 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 I mean, you would be down to like basically describing part of a specimen if it was just up to you. But, you know, that's what good science is. is It's building off of where the others have done and trying to find where that Mm -hmm. new little uh, shadow is to to shine a light on. And, you know, going back to something you had kind of mentioned earlier is this idea of, you know, we'd love it if this leaf was attached to this stick in the fossil record, but we have each independently. I went through a big scale tree phase. I would say I'm still probably in it on some level, but I tried once to dive into that literature and <laughs> you're like, wait, all these things are named something different. And, and, and is that also what you're coming up mm-hmm. against is like, yeah, the roots were called something. The sticks were called something, this weird little seed thing. Like, oof, yeah. Is that kind of where a lot of that yeah, happens? So that, that is, I remember so vividly when I took my comprehensive exam, that <laughs> idea of what what is a species in our species real? And <laughs> my my comprehensive exam study group talking about this question forever. And most all but one of us is a paleontologist. And so all of us have been operating under this morphogenus or mo- morphotaxon framework where you find a fossil and even if I can't prove definitely it doesn't belong to this stick that's already been named I can't definitely prove it wasn't (laughs) and so you name it and you're like this leaf is named this thing and I can't tell you if it was attached to this stick or this root or this whatever other structure but I can tell you I have this leaf that doesn't look like any other leaf. <laughs> and so it sits for a while, this, this morphotaxon. And then, you know, however long later it takes for someone to find a fossil either in nature or waiting patiently in a museum collection somewhere, <laughs> uh, you find someone be like, oh my gosh, that leaf that you described X number of years ago is attached to this stick. Yoink. And so at that point in time, several things can happen. The names can stay the same. You can rename the youngest thing or the two together become their own name. <laughs> and that is sort of where things get crazy. And especially in the paleobotany literature, where oftentimes these fossils are described 
starting in, you know, the, the 1890s and then all the way through today in some journal from the former Soviet Union <laughs> and then another in Australia and then another here. And, oh, you know, this person already described this fossil before this person did 10 years later. And so we have to confer to the old name and it it's very chaotic. Yeah. And that, I mean, it was that way when I was working on Zostrophils, which there are much fewer, you know, I spent a couple months compiling a list of known Zostrophils. And while it probably wasn't entirely complete, I think I got probably about 95% oh, of wow. the diversity in there. Okay. Uh, with carboniferous lycopods, I don't think I could ever compile a whole <laughs> list. There are hundreds of papers. And um, the whole reason we have the full plant concept of lepidodendron was this guy named Eggert in the 1960s put together the, the whole plant concept of this tree. He spent the time, hundreds of specimens, and from inside out described this tree well, if you want the original paper, you need a physical reprint of Paleontographica or uh, something, which is not online. You need a physical paper. Cool. And fortunately, once again, Rudy, shout out my collections manager, Rudy. had it. He actually had a spare <laughs> copy. So now I have my very own. Nice. But it just, you can know these things, but there's just so much there yeah that yeah it's it does from time to time working in this group of plant get very daunting like what have i done to myself why right. did i want to do this oh my gosh <laughs> what is happening but <laughs> you know the amount of times over a beer or at a conference or something i have had that is you know for extant species modern day botany of what's a species what's a cryptic species are these subspecies varieties or do they deserve species status? And that's with complete organisms with lots of vouchers most of the time. Oh my God, what you just described. I'm like sweating from the nervousness of like, oh, what are we missing? What are we missing? Mm -hmm. Did I look at that? Oh, that is, but it's also kind of cool because fossils are amazing. And, you know, mysteries are also kind of cool when you're not, you know, under extreme deadlines to figure out those mysteries. But <sighs> yeah. And I mean, I know it's quite a bit of a hot take, but from where I'm standing on this macroevolutionary perspective, hats off to the, you know, the species evolution biologists of the world, because <laughs> I, I could not do that. But I am sort of in this camp of, are species real? Are they not? I don't really know. And I use them kind of as a tool to mm -hmm. gauge certain things like, how diverse like what what are we seeing morphologically here um, um how diverse was this time versus that time but i guess i don't really have any you know <laughs> yeah rods in the fire on that one i just i i am not emotionally attached either way i love it i love I'm trying that, to say that as politically as possible because i feel like one of my <laughs> committee members might be uh, mad if he ever hears this. I love that though. That is <laughs> that's a great perspective because yeah, modern day botanists were studying snapshots, very very short small snapshots on a big spectrum of time. 
you and your colleagues are spending time on, on lots of snapshots and it's almost like you line them all up and you go woof and you can watch how things change over time. You have a unique perspective on that. And I think it, it species concepts are useful. They are meaningful. And in some ways, I think they're pretty good. But at the same time, working in deep time across long spans of time in the fossil record teaches us it's all mutable. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, another thing that I didn't take directly from my my foray into the math department my <laughs> my crazy trip into the world of probability is a lot of these biological ideas in their essence are the same as any sort of mathematical proof or or logic experiment hmm. is like you know our species real well it depends what you're looking at and what species concept you're using in this particular case what are you building your foundation on and you know there are circumstances where it's really useful to say species are real and there's other circumstances where maybe that's not as important or they're not real in this way but they are in that way and so hmm. uh that fluidity and that ability to build a logical argument on a on a foundation of knowledge i think is most important when you're navigating those sorts of questions. Big time. Meg, this has been phenomenal. What a wonderful insight into your work and also just kind of how this world works in general. Um, if people want to keep a finger on the pulse of what you're doing, because I think it's very obvious at this point, you've got a bright and fruitful career ahead of you. Where do you recommend they go looking? Um, I have a science Twitter at Zostrophilum. Nice. <laughs> and... Uh, I also have my website, which is just meganibs.github.io um, that I keep relatively updated. <laughs> um, so if if anyone wanted to find me, those would be the spots. Nice. Way to uh, lock down those names. <laughs> yeah, I really, you know, you got you to gotta hold tight to the Zostrophils. They're, oh, yeah. they're good. That's perfect lesson to end it on. Meg, thank you so much for taking time to talk with us. Congrats on becoming a candidate. You're going to do great. Uh, but yeah, again, thank you so much. I know you're busy. I know it's stressful, but thanks for geeking out and teaching us about this. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was fun. Good. Well, hang in there and uh, keep up the amazing work. You're going to do great. Cheers. Thank you. All right. Fantastic stuff. What an incredible journey and what hard work must go in to try to understand Lycopsida evolution. I thank Meg for taking time out of her very busy schedule to talk with us about this, and I recommend you go over to the show notes at indefensiveplants.com slash podcast and check out the links I put in there to find out more about the work she has done and is currently doing. While you're over there, look at all of the great ways you can support the show. For instance, you can pick up a copy of my book, some of our customizable merch and stickers, and as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, you can also become a patron over at patreon.com slash indefensiveplants. Podcasts like this do not happen without support, and there are a lot of great ways to do it, so consider supporting it today. But that is enough out of me for this week. I thank you all for listening. At the very least, make sure you're hitting that subscribe button and checking back in, because there's always great conversations just over the horizon. But until next time, hang in there, stay healthy, and get outside if you can. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.